Hey, good morning, Austin Oaks Church. I'm glad that you're with us online, wherever you are at. I'm thrilled that we are now on YouTube and all that kind of stuff. So, hey, wherever you're at, um, won't you say hello if you haven't already? Let us know that you are there. We got our staff interacting on Facebook comments and YouTube comments. And I want to encourage you as well during this time, if you could interact. It's, it's really fun to do that, to reflect, but may it not be a distraction though. But if there's anything that like grabs your heart or, you know, strikes you in the sermon, just, you know, do a little amen, a little emoji fist pump, a little, you know, praise hands, whatever it is. We'll love for you to interact. Um, but before we get moving um, this morning, I do want to say thanks to our incredible tech team, which none of you see, okay? Like they have been working hours upon hours behind the scenes, getting us all set and ready for that. So I, I want to thank uh, Josh and Kira Bridgewater. I want to thank Josh Broccolo. I want to thank Bennett Bruin. Um, and, and there's others that are involved in this. Just thank them. You know, you can give them a little high five on the comment. Um, that'd be great. But they are serving you extremely well in this season. And so um, I love them to death and I'm so thankful for them. So a um, few quick announcements that are really, really exciting that we're going to be letting you know of in, in the near future. Um, our staff team, we've been working very hard on trying to create a schedule um, of programs and events and things that we're going to do. And so, for instance, I've been doing Facebook live streaming on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and that's going to continue. We got some of those set up. And so we're going to give you guys um, and gals a schedule of everything that we're going to do from Sunday to Sunday. So there's some things on there that you're going to want to be part of, and there's some things that you're not going to be that interested in. We just want to give you things to look forward to. Um, thanks for your kids. Thanks for your youth. If you want to um, learn how to disciple, uh, you know, be a better disciple maker or even a disciple, we're going to have a class on that. We're going to do training on evangelism, um, all sorts of things. So look forward to that, okay? Now, one, one thing I want you to be ready for, okay? This coming Wednesday, either at 7.30 or 8 p.m., I'm not sure which one yet. It really all depends upon me. But either 7.30 or 8 p.m. this Wednesday, I need you all to be ready to do what I'm going to ask you to do. It's a surprise. Anticipation. Be ready. 7.30 p.m. this coming Wednesday, be ready. I will let you know what that is by the end of the day tomorrow, okay? So we are in Lent, okay? So this morning's topic, this morning's message, we're not going to be so much looking at the, the coronavirus and the economy and all the things that are around us that are happening, that are affecting our lives. What I want to talk to you today is about your heart. Um, Lent is a season where we prepare our hearts before the Lord. We come to him just kind of like John the Baptist was doing, uh, preparing the way for the Lord. We're coming into one of the most beautiful and influential seasons as a believer. We're coming in to reflect, you know, whole, um, Monday, Thursday, the Lord's Supper. We're, we're reflecting on Good Friday when Jesus was crucified. And all of that is to help us celebrate Easter and to remind us, which is going to be probably the most timely reminder ever, that there is no grave, that it was the end of death, that there's no fear of death or fear of sin because of Easter, because of Jesus conquering the dead. And so we're going to be preparing our hearts for that. So we're in this season of Lent. And what we want to talk about this morning is the heart 
posture of repentance, okay? Lent is really the season of repentance, of bringing ourselves before the Lord and preparing our hearts. So we remember things. We look back and look at his faithfulness and what he has done. And so this morning is not only going to be a look back, it's going to be a look inward, okay? We need to look at our hearts. Now, real quick, I want to remind you, repentance is not a tool or a vehicle that God uses to condemn you. It's not something that we do as believers for God to point his finger at you and to remind you how bad you are and how many times you have blown it and all kind of stuff. Really, when we think about repentance, it's this ability and this grace that God has given us for us to humble ourselves before and to place ourselves before his feet. So we want to confess areas where we have wronged or fallen short, but not just confess it. We also want to be able to then act in accordance, like change the way we live to follow Jesus well. So wherever you're at, uh, before we get into the topic this morning, I want to spend some time praying. Okay, so I know we're online and we're streaming and it can be kind of odd to pray. And some of you might be watching me on the screen. I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at, just close your eyes and pray with me. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for our church. I want to pray for the churches in the city. But again, I want to pray for our healthcare workers, our nurses and doctors and the volunteers that are giving of, of themselves in ways that we can't even imagine in this season. So would you, wherever you're at right now, would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you and we ask, God, that you would kind of like pull back the curtain of our hearts this morning. Lord, I ask that this would be a moment where we would experience the peace and the calmness that you bring. Lord, I pray that our heart posture this morning would be one that wants to draw near to you. You've promised us in your word in James 4, 8, that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. So Father, I pray that that desire would be in us in this season, right now, this very moment, that we would want to draw near. And Father, I ask that in that moment, in this posture that we have right now, Lord, that you would teach us the importance of repentance. And Father, we, we want to also pray for the church's across the world. We want to pray for the churches in our city, in our nation. Lord, who are gathering right now in remote places and homes and all over the place via the internet. Lord, we pray that you would stir in their hearts that more than ever before the church would be unified. More than ever before would the church be driven to be on mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus. That more than ever before would the Easter message grab hold and dig deep into people's hearts and lives. Lord, we want to pray that you would support our healthcare workers and volunteers, our nurses and our doctors, those who serve and, and give of their time to ADRN and Samaritan's Purse and all these other, and Good Samaritan, and all these other organizations that are just serving, that are putting themselves literally on the front lines. God, we ask that you give them an extra measure of your grace and kindness and love this morning. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for technology to be able to do this. And wherever you're at, all of God's people said, amen. Okay, so when um, we lived up north in Minnesota, our first two homes were basically 
kind of like foreclosures, basically. There were homes that probably should have been just completely demolished. They were both in need of complete remodels, not just like one room remodeled, like the whole house needed to be remodeled. So for instance, the first home we bought, I mean, this is still a shock to me, but the first home we bought, we paid $52,000 for. $52,000. It was worth probably twenty. dollars I mean, it was just in horrible shape. It was the perfect house for newlyweds. It was kind of like what we would just call our honeymoon house. And we fixed it up, remodeled it, and we sold it eventually. And, and then we bought our second home, which was a little bit bigger, which was in far worse shape. This one should have been condemned and just completely destroyed. We paid $72,000 for this foreclosure. Now, Everybody who looked at this home, even building inspectors and, you know, the banks were wary about this. Um, my wife's parents really um, tried to um, counsel us out of buying it because it, it was just bad. It was horrible. There was mold. There was rot. But the worst part of the whole house was in the basement, which I know a lot of you guys have no clue what a basement is, okay? A basement is a space that you build under the ground, which you don't have here in Austin. You don't have basements. So try to imagine Okay, the basement of our home uh, in, in Minnesota, in the southwest corner, um, it caved in. And so it wasn't just poured concrete, it was concrete blocks. And there was this massive flood that happened, and the, our soil around our house was all clay. And so it just absorbed the soil, and it kept it, and it just kept pushing in that these concrete blocks, like, started to kind of, like, fall in and break in, and it just looked horrible. Like you literally would look at it and you would shudder and you would not want to be in the basement because you were just wondering when it would cave in. So before we bought it, some con um, contractors came in and they reinforced it with I-beams and they assured us that the wall wasn't going to move. You just got to crank it to get those I-beams back to level and those blocks would come into place. I mean, it looked horrible. I mean, absolutely horrible. Like homes wouldn't, or banks wouldn't back it. Home inspectors would advise you against buying it, but we, we bought it and, and we didn't have that much concern about it until it came to the point when we needed to sell the house. So when we thought about having to sell the house. We're like, what do we do? How do we fix this? And so I got a few bids. What would it look like to completely dig out the foundation and redo it? And the, the bill was like astronomical. And I was like, no, it's just going to be the way it is. And I actually had this thought in my mind. So don't judge me. I'm going to hide it. <laughs> like I'm going to hide it. I'm not going to let the potential buyers see it. So we put up these shelves in this in the area in our basement. So you couldn't really see it that well, but you would see the I-beams, which would go, why do you have I-beams? Which wasn't that unusual in basements because you'd have extra support, but we would try to hide it. Even when the potential home buyers wanted to come and look at our house, I would quickly kind of dodge the question. Like I would quickly try to move them out of that room, right? And so like I was trying to hide it. I wanted to conceal it. I wanted to cover up. I wanted to keep it in the dark because I didn't want to lose money on the sale. I wanted to grab every single dollar that I could so we can move to Austin and get the home we needed to get. And I didn't quite honestly want to deal with it because it was rather embarrassing. And I knew if they saw it, they would run away. Now, eventually... I came clean and I let them know all about it. I showed them the warranty. I showed them the contractor and all kind of stuff. And so they talked to the company that did it and they felt that peace. And lo and behold, praise God, they bought the house with the messed up foundation and everything that came with it. So as I was reflecting on that, I was like, man, isn't it extremely tempting to hide something like that? Something that you know is horrible 
Something that you know that if you don't fix it, eventually will buckle in, will cave, will cause great ruin. And it's easy to keep those things kind of like tucked away, covered up, put some shelves in front of it, pretend it's not there. When people want to kind of look at it, you just kind of short circuit, walk around the corner, all that kind of stuff. It's so easy for us to hide things. Folks, this is why we need to practice the art of repentance. Because there are so many things in our lives, isn't there? That we know that if we don't take care of it, that if we don't deal with it, it will cause significant problems. But let's be honest, there are so many times in our lives we just cover it up. We put shelves in front of it. We act like it's not there. We act like it's not a big deal. We get comfortable with it. And when people get close, we try to avoid it. We try to deny it, whatever it is. And here's what happens over time. We eventually become numb to these things. We tend to eventually forget about those things. And our heart becomes calloused and indifferent. And the dangerous thing that happens, and it will always happen, it will begin to erode our character. It will slowly begin to cause a greater um, chasm between us and God. To the point then we start to look at God and we blame him for all the things that go wrong. Or we begin to look at the things of God and we go, it's just too much. It's too hard. Or we go, it's just too boring. Whatever it is. That's why repentance is so important. So here, I want you to think about it this way. Repentance is an opportunity that God gives us. Repentance is an opportunity that God gives us. It's the opportunity to repent is a gift from God. Listen, listen, seriously, write this one down. The opportunity to repent is a gift from God. It's a way to move in the right direction. It's his grace and it's his mercy and it's his spirit that empowers us to bring it out, to confess it, to repent so that we can start to be renewed day by day so that we can have the life that God wants us so that we can live in freedom and not in condemnation so that we can live in freedom and not in guilt in freedom and not in shame. Repentance is a gift from God. He always leads to life, always. And so instead of hearing this topic and immediately going, oh my goodness, can we talk about anything else? Why do we got to talk about repentance? Why do we got to talk about confession of sin? Think about it this way. It's God's grace to you. It's his mercy to you. It's an opportunity to move and to embrace life. When we look at the Gospels, there was this figure by the name of John the Baptist. And we see a line that he says. His whole ministry was a ministry of repentance. His ministry was calling the people of Israel back to repentance. And one of his hallmark messages was to prepare the way of the Lord. And it was a prophetic utterance that came from Isaiah. And if we looked at Matthew chapter 3, he has this beautiful little uh, like, um, saying here in verse 7, 8, and 9. He says this or describing the situation, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and its Sadducees coming to his baptism, which is of repentance, he said to them, these, these be fighting words right here, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now look at this. Look at what he says. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, repentance isn't just a one-time thing. It's not a, a, like a two-time thing. It's a lifestyle. It's a posture. Per, bear fruit in producing, in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
what John's message and what he's basically saying is like, you can never move close to God. You can never have the relationship with God. You can never experience the freedom and joy that God gives to you if you are not living in a posture of repentance. Repentance is how we prepare our hearts to receive from God. It's how we get close to God. It's how we move close. And when we say draw near to the Lord, it's really a posture of repentance. It's an act of humbling ourselves. We prepare the way. John's telling the Pharisees and Sadducees, listen, it's like you guys think that by your pedigree or by who you are, you're good. Right? You're, you're, you're a Christian, so therefore you're good. Like you say that Abraham's your father. No, that's not going to be good enough. And a lot of times we think that our acts are good enough. No, they're not. Repentance is a posture of the heart. Repentance is a major theme. We see it in Acts when every time they were preaching about Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, the people are cut to the heart and they're like, what should we do? And then like specifically, if you look at Acts 3, Peter says, repent, be baptized so that your sins would be blotted out and that times of refreshing would come. Repentance is a gift of grace that God gives us. It's how we produce fruit. It's how we bear fruit through the Holy Spirit. It's how we grow closer to him. It's how we experience times of renewal and refreshing, which is what we're going to talk about next Sunday. But repentance is a gift. It's not something that God uses to condemn us, to point his finger at us, to call it all of the wrongs and all the things that we've done wrong. It's an opportunity for us to move towards renewal. It's a lifestyle. I want you to hear that. Repentance ought to be a lifestyle for the believer. It's part of what we do. And this morning, I need you to understand something. Something we say all the time here. The problem isn't that we don't love God enough. The problem is, is that we don't understand how much God loves us. He always comes near to us. This whole thing is a relationship. It's not a ritual. It's not a routine. It's not a religion where we do things in order to appease God or to buy God off, to make him happy. No, it's a relationship. We've caused wrong in this relationship. We've produced hurt in this relationship. We are the guilty party. But a lot of times we think that he's the guilty party. But the reality is we are. And that's why repentance needs to be something that we do all the time. He loves us so much that he is long-suffering. He is patient and he is kind. And in fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4, it says this, that like, do, do, do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing, look at this, not knowing that his kindness leads to repentance. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So that's what I want to talk about as we look at an Old Testament letter in the book of Micah in the Old Testament. Now, real quick, if you do have a Bible, I want to encourage you, open it up. Or if you're on a, a device, flip it up. Get your YouTube, or version app, not YouTube app, it, probably on YouTube if you're watching. Brandon, focus. Open up version or whatever Bible app that you have. Um, go to Micah 6. Now, listen, if you don't have a Bible if at all, let us know in the comments. You know, interact with us. Say, I don't have a Bible. I promise you, we will ship you a Bible. 
I want you to have a Bible in your home. I want you to be able to open it up, look at the words, read it, pray over it, meditate over it, okay? So we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 this morning. And just a real quick context, the first five chapters of Micah aren't real pleasant. Um, Israel has chosen to wander away from God again, and, and they're acting in all sorts of unjust ways. They're abusing their power. The religious leaders and the governmental leaders are oppressing the people because they basically forgot in God and chose to do their own thing. Even though they're still acting religious, they're still doing certain uh, Jewish things, but they've also adopted other religions. Um, they forgot about him and are choosing to go in their own way. And also, the next thing you know, they're thinking about themselves more about people. So they're they're extorting people. They're downplaying people. They're, they're wanting to get ahead. They're thinking about themselves over and over and over and over. And God's like, listen, that's not right. In fact, even in Micah chapter 5, it's this beautiful prophecy of Jesus to come. We see this, that there'll be one that'll be born in Bethlehem. And he's, you know, going to be the one that makes things right and all kind of stuff. So now comes chapter 6. And what we see in chapter 6 is a courtroom environment. So God, speaking through Micah, paints this picture of being in this courtroom, but there's a real intimate voice here. It's like God is pleading with his lover, which is his people. And for us New Testament believers, which is you and I who have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Basically, we can say it's all people, right? Like he's pleading with them to be right. So in this, in this passage, we see this courtroom. Look at verses 1 through 2 of Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. So he comes in and he's going to make a case. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. He's telling Israel, stand up. Plead your case before the mountains and let the hears hear your voice. Hear, O mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Like the fact that he's calling upon the mountains to be the witnesses. It's like these are always been the silent witnesses of God's people. They've, it's like supposed to evoke this imagery that they've always seen it. Like they've seen all of the acts that Israel has committed. All of the sin that Israel has committed that they maybe thought that they got away with. The mountains have seen it. They're the silent witness. And not only that, is that God's saying like this court case is not in private. It is public. Rise up. The mountains are going to be the witness. Plead your case. The Lord is going to create. He's bringing an indictment. So plead your case before them. This is a powerful theme. So like, I want you to think about this for a moment. There's going to be coming time at some point in your life when you will have to stand before the Lord. And there will be this opportunity to plead your case, right? There's going to be a moment, even the Bible says that everything that was done in secret will be made into light. What you was done in darkness will be proclaimed, you know. What was done in secret shout from the rooftops. Like there's nothing that we can ultimately hide, even though we think we can. Just kind of like the foundation. I think I can hide it. I'll put some shelves up. No one's going to see it. You can't. This is not only a personal Issue. This is also a church issue because he was also speaking to the nations. But if we look at Revelation chapter 2, 3, it's like speaking to the church. And if you look at the first church that was brought before the Lord, you know, he's like, hey, you've done this. You did great deeds. You're passionate. You're this and this and this. But I have this against you. Plead your case. I have this against you. You're forgotten your first love. 
And really, that's the same idea that God is bringing before Israel. Plead your case. Have you ever felt that things were God's fault? Like all of a sudden you look at your life and the circumstances and the things and you're just like, where's God? This is all him. I did this. It's his fault. What, what can I say? I can't make an excuse for this. Like if he would have acted, I wouldn't have done this. So it's all his fault anyways. Like, no. The mountains are like this eternal image of a silent witness. They've always seen our actions. Have you ever been caught? doing something wrong and you tried really, really, really hard to plead your case that you were innocent? You ever like been caught with your hand in a cookie jar, as it were? And then you tried to actually like blame the other person? Like, no, this is your fault. You did the wrong. And if you wouldn't have done this and I wouldn't have done this. So yesterday, and I know my kids are watching and they're going to be mad at me later, but that's okay. Um, I'm here. They're there. Not a big deal. So yesterday, um, Carissa, my beautiful wife, you know, we, we told the kids, Hey, clean the kitchen, and whoever doesn't help is going to have to clean the kitchen all by themselves. We thought that was a brilliant motivation for both of them to go at it. But what we discovered was that they were trying to set each other up to fail so that one could like, have to do the kitchen all by themselves. And so it was like this blame fest, like, she's not helping me, and she said this, and this, and this, and this. And she's like, no, no, he did this. And they were just honestly trying to get the other person to do it all by themselves. It was hilarious. Not one of them was owning the issue. They were always blaming the other. God's saying here, listen, plead your case. Plead your case to these mountains. They've seen everything. Plead your case. Come on, let's go. And I want you to notice before we continue the intimacy of, of this phrase, his people. Oh, my people, his people. This is not like a, a, a mean, distant relationship with a judge and a jury. This is like God like pleading. It's like two lovers who are in this argument where one has done something wrong. They're like, what have I done? So let's look at this. Verse three through five. Oh, my people. I want you, as I read this, I want you to feel the heart pain of God here. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Like, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from a land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balor, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous act of the Lord. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Like this, this is like a wounded lover like he doesn't stop. He doesn't start this court case. What you would think like, okay, Israel, here's what you've done. You've done this wrong. You, you've started to worship the God of Baal. You, you did this. You picked up all these other things. You've forsaken me. He doesn't do that. He just literally just goes, what have I done wrong? How, how, how have I wearied you? How, how have I caused you to be so bored and, and indifferent towards me? What did I do wrong? Like he, he's, helping, he's asking these rhetorical questions, helping them to think through. They're wanting him, God's wanting Israel to think through the past. How has he been unfaithful? What has he done wrong? Can you ever see a time when he was unjust, when he was unkind, when he was unfaithful? These are powerful questions 
What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Oh, my people. It's a jealous love. God's heart is very vulnerable right here. What have I done to cause this? What have... What didn't I do for you that would choose you to go after other lovers? Like, why are you giving me the cold shoulder that you would treat me this way? This is such irony that he would invite his people to bring any and all charges to him. If you have any wrong, bring it. I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to make it right. But the reality is they're not going to be able to find any. In fact, the reality is the issue is, is their ingratitude. It's their indifference. It's their neglect. You've grown tired with me. You've grown bored of me. Is it really such an effort to be with me, to be in a relationship with me, to give me any time or any affection? I mean, you could just feel this, this angst. And all, what you can see, at least as I read this, I can just imagine Israel like just shrugging their shoulder in silence like, like they have nothing to say. And that's the point. It's, it's a silent confession in a way. Now, now, I want you to think about this. When you think about your own spiritual life and where you're at and all the things in your, in your heart, and when you think about repentance, I want you to think about these two questions because it's so easy for us to start to blame God for things. What have I done to you? Imagine God asking you that. What have I done to you to cause you to do this? How have I wearied you? How, how have I made you like, get cold and bored with me? I mean, when we reflect on these two questions, like when, when we think about things where we have convinced ourselves that God has wronged us, or when we see that our relationship with God is a burden, like coming to church is a burden, like reading the Bible is a burden to pray is a burden, it's going boring and it's cold, like prayer, like oh my goodness, prayer. Have you forgotten you're talking to the God who spoke things into being with his very word? Have you forgotten who he is, what he has done? What have I done? Like, like he's asking him just to reflect, to think through the past. Folks, there's so many of us, and, and, and I know this to be true because I've done this. There's been seasons in my life when things weren't going the way I wanted in my own life. Like I looked at it and I was like, God, you owe me. God, I've chosen to be in ministry. I've chosen to raise my own support. I've, I've chosen, <laughs> chosen, right? I've chosen to like make barely any money and my wife and I are trying, we're trying to do this and I thought you would at least give me something back in return but all I get is I feel like you're not answering my prayer. I don't feel like you're showing up. You're not helping me in this relationship. I feel like you're not helping me deal with this habitual sin and that habitual sin. Where are you? It's your fault that I'm in this case. And I would blame him and I'd be like, God, look what I've done. You owe me. And we start to think of it as a transaction. How many of you have ever been there? Or maybe how many of you have ever been in this place where you just gotten bored, weary of doing good, weary of worship? I mean, just think about that for a moment. We get to sing to the one who knitted your heart together who formed you, who knows everything about you, who loves you with an infinite and undying and never-ending love. At one point, we're going to see him and there will be no such thing as boredom. But we grow bored, don't we? We look at all these things as boring, but the reality is, 
We need to be honest. We misunderstand who God is. We misunderstand what God gives us in this relationship. And we misunderstand what God ultimately desires from us. We misunderstand so many things. And that's why we need to think back. We need to remember who he is. We need to remember what he offers us. And we need to remember what he ultimately desires from us. Answer me, Israel. How have I weird you? Answer me. Like he's not okay with silence. And then he continues in verse 4 and 5. He's like, he just tells them this great salvation story. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. You didn't do a thing. If I didn't intervene, you would still be slaves in Egypt. I brought you out. I responded. I rescued you. I'm the one who led you out. I'm the one who fed you. I'm the one who provided for you. And looking, he goes, says, I redeemed you. I paid the price. I brought leaders to lead you. Not only that, it's like, don't you remember Balak and king of Moab and Balaam? Like, they meant to bring this curse upon you. What they intended for evil, I intended for good. And I turned that curse into a blessing to bless you. And I saw you all the way through when you crossed over the Jordan to the very land that you're standing on. Can you look back in the past? Can you look through the previous generations and notice one area of my unfaithfulness? One area of my ungoodness. Answer me. Can you show it to me? That's the heart that God is bringing them. And the answer is no. They are standing. The soles of their feet are on the very ground of God's faithfulness and his promise. He saw them all the way through. And he's just like, what have I done wrong? They can't answer. They forgot. They forgot the plot. They were slaves, sinners. God came after them. Have you forgotten the plot? That's why Lent is a good season. God comes after you. You didn't deserve him. You were dead in your sins. You were a wayward sheep. You were the prodigal son, the overly religious Silas sister. Like, you are where you are because of Jesus, not because of you, not because of your family, not because you were baptized or confirmed or you had communion or whatever it is, or not because you got a perfect church attendance or you don't watch rated R movies. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with him and what he has done. Can you look past? Can you look in the past and see his faithfulness? Can you even just point out one moment when God has done something wrong? Has God ever proven himself that he's boring? That what he offers you is too much? What he asks of you? No. Absolutely not. And when we look at Ephesians chapter 2, I mean, you get this beautiful, in verses 1 through 10, this beautiful picture of the gospel. You are objects of God's wrath, you know, and it was God by his mercy that he saved you. It's by his grace through faith that you've been saved, not by works that no one can boast, right? It's all him, it's all him, it's all him. And in verse 11 and 12, also Paul's like, remember that you were once estranged, you were aliens, that once you were enslaved, once you were, do not forget it. Remember, he was the one who brought you in. He's the one. Don't forget that. He's the one. So, let me ask you this question. 
Have you ever been caught in this moment and immediately your, your thought goes, what can I do to make this right? How do I make this right? Like I have this instinctive response inside of me to make things right. So like, for instance, when I'm not a good husband with my spouse and I hurt her or I do something boneheaded, which honestly never happens, but just for example, let's just say that happens. Husbands, you with me? Come on, right? And uh, wives, you can just say amen, you know, all that kind of stuff. But like, there's so many times when I do something wrong, my my immediate instinct reaction is, what can I do to make it right? So like sometimes I will start to do things that she doesn't even need or doesn't even want. I just think that maybe if I do a bunch of nice things, it will smooth things over. So for instance, even though like I'll downplay it, like I'll start to do dishes more. I'll, I'll clean more. I'll be more kind. And she's like, you're just doing this because you feel bad. And then I would just be like, no, I'm not. I'm just doing it because it's like the reality is, yes, I, I am. I'm trying to like pay my way out and make things good. Like we just have this natural reaction inside of us that what can we do? How can I pay you or what can I offer you to make it right? To just to kind of move it on and put it behind us. And we do that with God. So we start to think, what can I do? God, I'll go to church more. God, I'll pray more. God, I'll read my Bible more. God, I, I promise I won't drink anymore. God, I promise I won't do this anymore. I'll do this and I'll do this and this. And that's exactly how Israel responds. Look at verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord? Bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? What can I bring? What can I bring? What can I do? And they start to think it's all about what they can do. There's nothing they can do. Everything they do, everything they bring is tainted by their sin. But the fact that they use the word what, it's like this indictment against them that they've forgotten that it's a relationship. They've forgotten what God ultimately desires. Have you? When we think about repentance, do you immediately think about what you can tangibly do to please God? But if we are to be honest, when we start thinking about what we can do to move the situation on, to make the wrongs right, if we were honest, it's more about pleasing ourselves than it is about pleasing God because it makes us feel like we have some control. It makes us feel like we're, we're doing something. But the reality is there's nothing There's nothing that we can bring. I mean, look how exaggerated this is. 10,000 of rams and 10,000 of rivers of oil and give my firstborn. Like, what more can I do? What else can I do, God, to make this right? What can I show you or prove to you, God, that my heart is right? Do the dishes? (laughs) Nope. Nothing. The reality is it's not about what, it's about who. Verse 8, he has told you, oh man, what is good. And I love this, oh man, is the word basically in Hebrew, Adam, is supposed to snap back all the way from the very beginning. You've known what is good. That word good is so important. He has shown you, it's been clear from the very beginning what is good. It's not a surprise. Is not a secret. And look at this. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? 
Don't love justice. It's easy to just love justice. That's abstract. Yes, I love justice. It's harder to do justice. It's harder to live that lifestyle of thinking about the least of these, of fighting for equality, like going after those things. It's harder to do that. It's harder to love kindness than it is to do kindness. Doing kindness is like a switch. You can act you can turn it on and off. You can be kind whenever you choose. But to love kindness is a lifestyle. To be ever loving, to be ever generous, to be ever compassionate all the time. But you can't do justice and you can't love kindness if you're not walking humbly with God. In the heartbeat of this phrase of walking humbly with God is the posture of repentance. Of bringing yourself low before him. So, reason why this is so powerful is because we need to remember in this season how amazing it is that God loves us. That God doesn't just drag us into the court and immediately start to point out all the crimes that we have done. All the sins that we've done. God in his mercy gives us the opportunity to repent by helping us think through his faithfulness and going, what have I done wrong? Is there any proof, anything? How have I wearied you? And we only get bored with God when we forget that it's a relationship. So start thinking through all of these things. Because what God ultimately requires us is for us to humbly walk with him. Walking is following. It's how we live day in and day out. It's a posture. So wherever you are at this morning, or even if you watch this later, this evening, this afternoon, or whatever, I want you to start thinking about this. Have you started to blame God for issues and things in your life? Have you grown convinced that God is unjust towards you? That God is unloving towards you? He's unfaithful towards you? Do you feel like God has neglected you? Doesn't see you? Isn't merciful or compassionate towards you? Do you blame God for the issues that you are willfully choosing to engage in? Like, have you grown bored? With God? Have you seen everything that we do in following Jesus as ritual, religion, routine, a burden, or do you see it as a relationship? Here's the deal. I hope that now when you read something like Romans chapter 12, when Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you understand. That God so loves you. He is so kind towards you. And his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And when we think about the gospel, he's the one that always comes after you. Always. Even when you accuse him, he still comes after you. Even when you've grown bored, with him, he still comes after you. And he sent his son Jesus to do everything for you that you could never do for yourself. And when you reflect on all of that, the only appropriate response is to offer yourself 
to him as a living sacrifice day by day by day by day. Here's what I know about a living sacrifice. They want to get off the altar. Stay on the altar. That's why I love Micah 6, 8. Walk humbly with your God. Your God. It's intimacy. It's relationship. So I don't know who's watching this, but I want to challenge you because I know a lot of people are starting to check out things of of Jesus, and, and rightly so. And if you never heard that following Jesus is about a relationship and you think about it, it's a religion, things you gotta do and behave like and all this kind of stuff, I want you this morning to think about this, that Jesus, he died on the cross for you, with you in mind. He paid the price for your sin. He died, he took the punishment that was yours and he took it upon himself and he bought you He paid for you to redeem you from slavery, from sin and death with his own blood. And Easter reminds us that when he conquered death, it was the end of death as we know it so that we could have eternal life with him now and forever. If you've never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, wherever you're at, this is your moment. And if you're ready to say yes to Jesus, just comment on Facebook, comment on YouTube. One of our staff will interact with you. They might even call you. And start to walk these things through with you. It's so important. But if you, follower of Jesus, brother, sister, son, daughter, if you have forgotten that it's a relationship, if you have grown weary or bored or cold towards Jesus, or if you have started to blame him, I want to encourage you, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So wherever you're at, I want to pray for us. And ask for God's blessing and his grace this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your Holy Spirit takes words, takes thoughts, and applies them to our hearts. Lord, I'm so thankful that you take, you take my words and, and you take them and you transform them and you do what you need to do. You're literally turning water into wine. So Father, I pray for our church and for those who are watching wherever they're at. Lord, I pray for those who maybe have never said yes to Jesus, who never understood that Christianity is about a relationship with the creator of this universe who so loves us, who's so kind and so patient with us. Father, I ask that you would meet them in this moment, even if it's virtually, Lord. I pray that your spirit would penetrate their hearts just like the dove that fell on your son Jesus when he was baptized and he heard the Father say, this is my son whom I am well pleased that when we receive the gift of life through your son Jesus, you look at us, you've adopted us, you place your spirit inside of us and you see us as your son and daughter and you are well pleased. Father, I want to pray for those of us who've been following you. Maybe we have forgotten you. Maybe we have blamed you and accused you of things. And maybe our hearts have just grown cold. Father, I pray that this morning would be the morning your spirit brings to light the areas that we need to repent of. And understanding that repentance is a gift of grace that you give us. We praise you and we love you. Be near us as we know you are because your word says it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.